Welcome, welcome, bienvenue to Down the Line, an episode-by-episode episode review of the best TV drama series ever made, Secret Army. Hello, I'm Andy, and I could freeze to death in my bed and no one would notice. And I'm AJ, and I like to surprise my friends with last-minute horse riding trips. And you know that second horse I've just managed to get? It's for you! <laughs> <laughs> We'll get onto those horse riding trips a little later, will yeah. we not? But first, how are you today? I'm good. So we were just complaining before we started recording that the podcast studio that I thought I had in my house is perhaps the, the worst room in the house to be the podcast studio. So on previous episodes, you may have heard hailstones. You may have heard my computer overheating. You will have heard birdsong. We've now decided that my bedroom is actually the better location. So welcome to the boudoir. Yeah, what I was going to suggest was our podcast could change direction into like spring watch type show of like sounds of the seasons with Andy and AJ. And then we could have here's today's weather. Here's today's bird, lovely bird song. Yeah, I think that's maybe got one episode in it. <laughs> no listeners. No, exactly. <laughs> so how have you though? I haven't asked you how you are. I am in good spirits today. I am always very excited when we have recording days. And oh. so like all morning um, at work, I was kind of half listening to my service <laughs> users and just being like, you know, oh, yeah, all right, yeah, oh, yeah. And then inside I'm just like, it's recording day. <laughs> when can I go home and record? <laughs> That's lovely. Especially because as we talk about, we always mention episode notes, episode notes. Me and Andy gather our thoughts onto a shared google documents so we kind of know where to take the podcast and have our chats and so when we get close to recording i'm always like has andy updated it yet just because your notes always crack me up so oh, yours do too but um the funny thing is it's who gets there first it's always interesting to see who's there first and whether it's complete or not and and then i have this big drama do i read aj's notes because if i do will i be influenced too much and yeah and will that yeah maybe change your opinion or change not the severity of the emotion but like how much you might assign to each feeling about the show or something you know what I mean (laughs) exactly yeah exactly that and who gets in there and bags the jokes as well I know I really struggled with my joke this time at the start no it's good I I nearly went for that one and then I was like oh Oh, did you I'll go for the other one but I spent way too long as well I was like oh which one oh this one maybe that one but yeah Love it. Anyway, enough lovey-dovey complimenting each yeah, other. We're, it's not It's not the now. podcast where AJ and Andy just go, no, I like you. No, I really like your job. No, you're better. Oh, you're really fun. <laughs> you make me laugh. We're here to talk about Series 1, Episode 6, which is called Growing Up. So this was written by Willis Hall. Are you sure about that? <laughs> no, well, this has been a, moment, a matter of debate. I think it's IMDB that led us around the wrong path here, but We're pleased to report that my book was correct. And I knew it had to be Willis Hall because essentially this is very close to a reworking of the film he wrote with Keith Waterhouse, um, Whistle Down the Wind. So I knew it was Willis Hall. It had to be. Then we did have a bit of overhaul confusion. There's too many halls. (laughs) Yeah, because so if if anyone does go and check on IMDb, the wrong author is author. The wrong writer is listed for this episode. Oh, uh, but yeah, so that was my uh, learning. But now we know who it is, who did what. We're definite. So, can you lead us in with a plot summary? I can indeed. 
A wounded airman, Sergeant Hausen, is stranded and hides in a barn. Because Germans are in the area searching for airmen, Lisa and Albert are initially unable to help. Hausen gets some help from a local boy named Jean-Paul, who moves him to another hiding place in a disused quarry. The boy's mother, Anna, is a lone parent following the death of her husband in the war, and is now close to German Corporal Emil Schnorr. Lisa and Albert mount a daring rescue of the airmen, but unfortunately Hausen has given the boy a small gift, which reveals his presence and leads to tragic consequences. Dun dun dun! So we've established this is written by Willis Hall. It's directed by Kenneth Ives, or as I keep noticing in your notes, you keep calling him Kenny Ives, which I really love that you're just so familiar with him that he's Kenny now. Um, I think I've also got like, is there like a sax player called Kenny G? I think I've kind of got that Kenny I. Isn't it a pianist, Kenny G? Oh, I don't Maybe know. a pianist, yeah. He's definitely a, a musician. Yeah, yeah, so I've kind of gone with the Kenny I. Wonderful. So we should say this is the episode where we got a bit of a close-up of the behind the scenes because of the Secret Army series, the making of series that was put out at the time, um, which fo- one of the episodes focuses entirely on this episode, does it not? From what I can gather from clips that I've managed to find online is that throughout the whole five episodes, it looks at different parts of the making of, and quite a lot of it does focus on scenes from this episode, whether that's in the rehearsal room or filming on location. Yeah, it's quite interesting to see, though. So do you want to know about the first time I watched the Secret Army behind the scenes series? Yes, I have a feeling there's a the twinkle in your eye reveals <laughs> there's a story behind this. There is. You won't be able to guess who I watched it with. Did you watch it with, oh, I don't know who to go for, cast member or producer. Did you watch it with Jerry Glaster or something like that? Close. Uh. After Jerry died, I watched it with Joan Glaster. And why did you watch it with her? Oh, had he not died by that point? Oh, I don't remember. It was definitely in the Glaster front room, (laughs) which is so unlikely, isn't it? It's because Joan had a copy and she was like, you probably want to see this. And I was like, yeah, send it to me. And she's like, oh no, no, you come to me, darling. Oh, wow. So I had to go all the way to London to watch it. But it was quite awkward to watch it and not be able to make all the notes and all that stuff. And I actually do have another copy of it somewhere, but I've not been able to find it because there have been multiple house moves since then. But it was all very much about the authenticity. And what I wanted to see was all the behind the scenes of the rehearsals. And there's some gorgeous bits of that, but it's not all of it. Yeah. From the clips I've managed to see, you do get some um, quite long talking head sections with like Paul Annette and Austin Woody and Kenneth Ives especially has to talk a lot about his direction. You know how you said earlier they didn't look too happy about uh, about the behind the scenes being there bec- just because it made filming difficult and things like that. Yeah. And yeah, bless them. So that some of the actors are interviewed, but they haven't really started work on the show yet. So they're like, well, I haven't got the scripts for my character yet, but I think they are. <laughs> so they're all doing their best, bless them. But um, yeah. yeah. And then yeah. in this episode, one of the scenes is the big funeral procession. Yeah. So you've got, you know, a director who's in difficult circumstances trying to direct people who don't speak English. They're, you know, they're translating and trying to get everyone, a lot of people in the right place and horses and a hearse and there's a hill. (laughs) And then you just have the camera, you know, being like, hello, we're recording this very stressful moment in your... Get out of it. Go away. (laughs) Leave us alone. Yes. But grateful that they are there because we can see... That's making me think of the brilliant comedy sketch, The Making of Acorn Antiques. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't seen it, but it already sounds funny. It's very stressful to be doing this whilst (laughs) filming. (laughs) First there is a postbox, then there's no postbox. What's next? No shop? 
Anyway. But I did enjoy, so you know in episode three when Lisa's hanging off the roof? Yeah. So there's a shot where they show kind of how that's done, but it's filmed like horizontally. Yeah. So Jan Francis is like lying on a raised block being like, oh, I'm falling, but he's <laughs> just lying horizontally. And then Christopher Neem is kind of crouching being like, I'm pretending oh. that I'm horizontal and I'm holding you. And then Jan Francis has to like crawl forwards to look like she's getting on a roof. So they're all doing it like 90 degrees, the wrong angle, if that makes sense. Clever stuff. Yeah. And also, you can see things like naughty newspaper clippings in the production office, which they forgot to take down. <laughs> yes, you showed me a clip of that, a scene. Yeah. So there's just serious, you know, oh, and in this episode, we're now looking at the props or what have you. And then there's just in the background, uh, presumably some kind of thing with a, a woman just holding. Her dress. <laughs> like, oh, 70s production yes. offices. Hey? I suppose that was relevant to the historical authenticity of the, that particular episode. Yeah. Mm. So we have a quote, do we not, from Kenny, Kenny I? Yes, in the behind the scenes, uh, in one of the clips I found, he says, growing up is the best television script I've ever worked on. Good. Filming locations, I wrote down in my notes, I wish I effing knew. I don't, can't believe that all of that emphasis on this filming town, this town in the behind the scenes and talking to so many different people, I still have no idea. Somewhere in Belgium. In the clips that I found. Do they say? They don't say exactly where it is. They say it's a mining village near Liège. And I tried to Google what sounded like the town name, but I didn't. I might have got the spelling wrong or something. Good. Good detective work. Well, not really. I just, <laughs> the behind the scenes stuff. Okay, you just watched Gave it. me the answer, yeah. But I'll take the credit. I'll take the credit for doing that. The um, walking and the horse scenes, though, were in Peterborough in the countryside. The very first scenes ever shot for Secret Army were filmed on the 17th of April, 1977. And they involved Sergeant Housen and Jean-Paul Dorn. So Norman Eshley and Max Harris. So that's nice info to know that they were the first scenes to go before the cameras. In the clips that I'd found, they also said that that day of filming in Liège was on the 12th of May 1977. So Ooh. interesting to see, you know, when things might be recorded in the Yeah. Stage. And then they went to the studio on the 8th and 9th of July. Oh. So, yeah, quite a, a body of time there. And then we went to broadcast on 12th of October 1977. So tell me what you think of this episode. Okay, so some initial some initial thoughts. I've always said this is kind of like a play for today. Yeah. It's got those strong vibes. And I was trying to work out why that was, because I remember writing it in my book and thinking, well, what do I mean by that? And I think it's largely because there's a lot of scenes on location. Play for today's had quite a lot of budget. And they were regarded as quite intense location but also character pieces and there was always a focus on a domestic setting there was often tragic deaths there was bad weather <laughs> and also from the point of view of a particular character and in this case it's the boy so I think yeah it does feel very play for today I could now watch a play for today or several play for today's and find out that's not what they are at all but that's kind of what they are in my head <laughs> yeah no I agree with that feel it feels like a good story a, an engaging story in itself it doesn't necessarily feel like I'm watching a secret army episode and you could actually cut the scenes out with the main characters in and it would run as a play for today wouldn't it I think oh totally yeah I think for me that is actually a negative at this point because we've had several episodes which really have the Condé regulars the lifeline regulars at the forefront we've had radishes with butter we've had second chance and this is another one of those episodes which kind of sidelines them and 
it's not great for us as the viewers because we're trying to identify with these characters and recognise them and understand them and it breaks up that connection again. Yeah, and I think that was my main takeaway because we've kind of said this a few times now and then I came to write my part of the episode notes and then I was like, we're just writing the same thing. Like, <laughs> the main characters are sidelined. It feels like, a st- you know, they're introducing more new characters. <laughs> yeah, stop it. Just focus on what you've got. You've got some good actors, you've got some good characters. Run with it. Yeah, I, I worry that listeners of this podcast will now be like, so when, so why did they enjoy this show so much? When, when are the main characters going to be in it? You know, like, but yeah. I've always said Secret Army starts from episode five. I'm now thinking Secret Army starts from episode eight. <laughs> and as we get further into the season, we'll just keep pushing it back. Series, ar- yeah, series no. Army, Secret Army begins in series two. <laughs> series two, no, at the end of series, no, it's the start of series three. No, it's episode four. No, yeah. But despite those possible negatives, I did enjoy enjoy is the wrong word because it's not you're not going to watch it to feel better about life are you but enjoying inverted commas yeah no that's that's true i think so i i valued watching this story yeah so i've already mentioned whistle down the wind for those that don't know that story it's about some children who hide a fugitive from adults in the countryside and it's very atmospheric the difference is that they think this adult is jesus it's, it's Haley mills and she's very sweet and she thinks it's Jesus, and the, and the fugitive is played by Alan Bates, brilliant actor. But um, it turns out he's actually a wife killer. Great. Oh no, that's not a good plot twist. No, it's not. And I think he's taken away at the end. But um, yes, it's about the naivety of children. However, what I would say here is that this is not about the naivety of the child. And I would like to question, I think we'll question together about what the growing up refers to in the title. Mm. Yes. Because I think it's too simplistic to say that Jean-Paul Dorn grows up during this episode. I think we've got a lot more going on here than that. Yeah. Interestingly, it's kind of um, flipped, isn't it? Because yeah. whilst Jean-Paul might not, if you will, get everything right, like he, he knows so much, he's so smart, he can get the airmen successfully to a safer hiding place. He just forgot to bring water and that's kind of maybe what a child would overlook but then actually is it his mother who is naive she's not really aware of any consequences that might be that might come of her associating with this german officer she just doesn't seem to understand the situation of the war in general she thinks she can stay out of it and we as we explore time and time again in secret army yeah that's simply not the case (laughs) it's not and even even schnorr tells her that it's like, no, you, you can't keep up with the war. And he probably knows what it means to go into her house and have tea with her and be nervous for her, but she doesn't seem to care. I mean, I'm amazed she's not pelted with fruit by her neighbours and called a collaborator. There could easily be scenes of that. Yeah, like, had the sad ending not happened, it could easily be, you know, once you get into series three, she would then be, one of, say, one of those women in a, in a cage with Monique, couldn't she? Yeah. Very easily, yeah. that would be her fate. Totally, yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, our our contention, is it not, is that the growing up could refer to her, actually, in a way. She's very naive in her her take on the war and the situation. Yes. Does anyone else grow up in the episode? Curtis certainly doesn't. Jesus. We'll get get on to Curtis again. My God. I actually didn't mind Curtis as a character the last time I watched this, but, oh, it's difficult now. Do you think the audience might do some growing up in that do you Ooh. feel like this is an episode well i suppose we've had radishes with butter haven't we and that was an episode with a very where you had to look at some very difficult moral mm. dilemmas but maybe this is one where it, it's another harsh reality of 
sometimes you've got to kill people to keep the line safe. Yeah. And a particularly harsh one because it's a civilian, it's not a soldier. It's, yeah. You're orphaning a child. Yeah, but this is the reality. Yeah. Ooh, that's good. Like that. I, I don't know. Having said that, I feel like the audience are already aware. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Now they're more aware. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case anyone by this point didn't guess. But I think it's great that you have a character all the way through this episode who does get bumped off. I actually quite enjoyed the third noise because I was so annoyed with... Oh. I know, sorry. But I was quite... I was so annoyed by this character. The way she treated the boy, I was so angry on his behalf. Which is like starting off before he'd even said anything. I can handle this one. No, he's got a he's got a name. And also when she's like, tell him your name. Come on, yeah, Jean Paul, yeah. tell him your name. It's like just you rephrase that, love. Yeah, and she's just unreasonable with him. When he's a good kid, he's got lots of imagination. He's obviously intelligent. He speaks well, but um, he has been through so much losing his father, and then to just be ex- just to expect him to accept that there's German in the house and it's okay. But the worst thing is, is towards the end of the episode, she says, they're going to come and kill you. They're going to come and kill you. And I'm like, oh my God, no, this is horrendous. You don't threaten a child with their death. Step one, how to reassure your child. No, 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 you can't. You don't know what you've done, Jean-Paul. If you'd left the man there in the barn where you found him, came away, said nothing. Ma, you must But you helped him, Jean-Paul. You're too young to understand, but it's war. It's not a game. You could be shot. Mama. It's true. They could stand you up against a wall and shoot you, son. Please, Mama. John Paul, I've got no choice. I must tell someone. Shake them really badly. I know, I did write bad shaking acting. She, instead of moving the object with the arms, she kind of holds the child still and shakes her back in her body. <laughs> I know, she does. It reminds me of the bad shaking acting in Robots of Death when one of the robots is doing... No, it's not Robots of Death, it's Revenge of the Cybermen. When one of the Cybermen has got Tom Baker's shoulders and just moves his jacket up and down. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yes. Great. But yeah, and then um, she's just not really... She almost doesn't really seem to get who her son is, does she? I don't think she wants to know. That's the issue. Yeah. As well, as there's just no willingness to kind of understand things from his point of view. Yeah. You know, like if I was with the child in my life and they were really struggling with something happening in the home, yeah. then I'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, you know, well, they're here now, but let's talk about this later. You know, there's just no... But I think, is that our modern sensibilities? Because one thing that the producer and script editor were trying to write into it was please remember these are 1940s values families were different people were different there was less talking about how people felt and understanding and empathy and any sort of psychology so maybe it's you're probably right it was more of a like um you know you've just got to do as i say and you're going to play outside you're going to come back you're going to just accept it yeah Yeah. and don't go in the quarry you haven't been in the quarry have you she kind of maybe knows he's been in the quarry but doesn't just believe it (laughs) exactly but i love the fact that john paul um, played beautifully by max harris has a very strong inner life and I love how he's kind of in love with the romanticism of the war and he's doing his aeroplanes in this in the playground. But then when he is confronted with it face to face with a, an airman, he's still very practical and he embraces it in a strong way. I mean, it's kind of kind of troublesome what he says about his, his mum not understanding because, well, she's a woman. <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> but um, I suppose that's his only experience of women is his mother. So he's not going to have a good view. I 
And I think he is very brave because I think he does know that there's potentially very bad consequences if he was going to get caught. Yeah. And I think he's very brave. He is. And fresh-faced in a sort of boy's own adventure sort of a way. Yeah. I love him. And such a good such a good portrayal from that. I've forgotten his name. Max Harris, did you say? Yes, Max Harris. I did try and um, look him up to see if we could get him on the show, but I couldn't oh, find any kind okay. of contact details. I also tried to look up the actress who plays the mother as well, but I think it would have meant trying to contact her on Facebook, and I was like, maybe that's a step too <laughs> yeah. far. You're listening to Down the Line, a Secret Army podcast. So, other things in this episode that you thought of, that occurred to you. Tell us more, AJ. I really liked... I think grief, in general, is a difficult topic to cover on TV shows. It's, it can be quite boring to watch. Or You often get the situation where like, a character's lost a loved one, they have the grief storyline, don't know where mm-hmm. they deal with it in one episode afterwards, and then it's like never really mentioned again. But I thought that the conversations between the German officer and the mother were just really beautiful. They really conveyed the shock, the trauma, the pain of losing their partners and... And those experiences and and how they came together through those shared experiences and but you know both might be lonely but they found each other and it it didn't matter so much that they were on different sides to that to them yeah it was just really beautiful I really liked it yeah I agree that was a very strong scene um, Susan Tracy and Brian Glover were on fine form there despite yeah. the elements raging around them. I know did no one give that woman a hair bobble could she not have tucked her hair in a in a headscarf a bit like that poor woman is just the whole scene is just like wiping hair away from her face so and then you came home and then like, he died he was one of the first to die and you're just like oh my gosh what a trooper <laughs> I mean, I think if we did episode titles that were based on what we say in the recording, it would be, <laughs> dear God, give that woman a hair bubble. <laughs> <laughs> Took a hair in the head scarf. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, what a trooper. They both did a very moving scene, despite it. I don't know. As I felt really felt for the guy. What's he called? Like the boom operator. He was probably just there like, oh, yeah. so I lost my husband. They, I wonder if they had to do all of the scene in ADR oh, again afterwards. <laughs> Possible. But um, I felt that Willis Hall definitely knew what grief was mm. from the way he talked about it. You know, they're just staring at the wall for ages. And the, other, and the woman's reaction was to just scrub the house endlessly. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, they're two very real reactions to grief. Yeah, and Max's, uh, sorry, <laughs> Jean-Paul's yeah. reactions to grief as well. I'll, I'll t- I'd like to touch upon that with my own personal experiences a little bit later. Hmm. But yeah, I thought they were, some, for me, some of the hardest scenes to watch because they felt so authentic. Sure. So yeah. 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 I think we both liked that Lisa had a good plan, a daring plan. Yeah, I really liked it. And I thought, oh, good on you, Lisa. I mean, it was, it, it kind of was a little camp. It was kind of a bit odd, wasn't it? And the way it was delivered about the horses, as we've already joked about. But to me, it was that weird pause where it was like, and the second one's for you, pause. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, no one would really laugh like, in that situation in, in that way. But again, just to um, touch upon the behind-the-scenes clips I found. Yeah. That scene, it made me wonder how arduous the rehearsing and then the camera rehearsal, like how that might feel for the actors. Because by the time you get to the final one, as a viewer, I was a bit tired that I'd seen that scene so many times. So <laughs> I wonder if there, you know, just only because it was repeated a lot in in short succession not yeah sure about secret army in general but yeah i wondered if you know by the time they get to it they're just almost like we've done it 20 times like oh and the other horse is for you 
No, <laughs> Yeah, and this may be something where there's an argument that sometimes rehearse record might be fresher. Yeah. Um, might be more dangerous, a bit more, have some sort of oomph, whereas this is often amazing. You could say, yeah, the rehearsals are great, but I think for a scene like this, it hasn't helped. Has it? I agree. Especially um, if it's a shorter scene or if someone's not got a lot to do in a scene, if it's over-rehearsed, it's just, they just looked a bit bored. Sorry. Yeah, no, exactly. And I don't think it was this part of the script was an interesting scene either. Right. <laughs> to be exploring. It wasn't really very, um, there was no depth to it. There was not very little about character. Yeah, they could have connected it with their personal experiences maybe. Like, how do they... So my question was... How do they know how to ride a horse? <laughs> did Albert, like, is that just common experience for people living in Brussels? Yeah. Or, like, did Albert grow up on a farm? Like, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, exactly, because you do need to do it, don't you? You need to know. But instead, they could have just thrown a quick line in there, like, oh, well, I know you used to grow you grew up in the countryside, Albert, so the second horse is for you. But they didn't take that chance to add any more depth to the character. Yeah. So you asked a question in your notes about whether the actors could ride a horse in real life. I think in the 70s, because so many, there was less safety around horse riding. And there's lots of horses on TV, probably because there was a lot more period drama around, that all actors said they could horse ride. <laughs> the amount of actors who said, oh yeah, I said I could ride a horse, and then I had to learn really quickly. So just like accents, they all say they can do all the accents and they can't. <laughs> so yes. I think that still goes on um, yeah. today, doesn't it? Like, oh, I've done fencing. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. And then they're just like, hello, can anyone teach me how to fence? <laughs> On Twitter. Exactly. Urgent need, fencing coach. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I think, I don't know about the horse. I can't remember. Well, they were on horseback for long, were they? Not very long, but they didn't look like they had never done it before. So, um, so Kessler and Brandt don't get a look in, just like the Lifeline regulars. They're yeah, in it. So who were they again? Which one? Kessler and Brandt? Ex- yeah. Exactly. Honestly. <laughs> poor Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan's just going to be like, you said these were the main actors. <laughs> yeah. They don't get out of the studio, I don't think. There's a few nice scenes to show the differences between them and how Kessler just wants to go for the kill and Brant's more calculated. But I think they flip on that one all the time as to who's the more calculated and who's the cleverer one. But in this episode, I do love the fact that Kessler's like, ah, oh, they found the, you know, the bug straight away. But in fact, there's two bugs. And I love that. I thought that was really neat that they'd hidden two bugs in the cell. Do you call them bugs? I'm trying to think, what's the other word? Listening devices? I don't know, yeah, but I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. I felt like Kessler was being a bit dismissive of Brandt's techniques because the British used that technique very, very successfully with captured Germans, didn't they? Hmm. Got a lot of information that way. They would frequently fall for that trick, apparently. So um, right. I was like, well, Kessler, why don't you tell your own men not to fall yeah. for them? Uh. So one other comment I made was that Brandt actually says down the line at one point, and I'm like, yay! Ding, ding, take a shot. <laughs> Um, important point the coat of death is back I didn't notice it you know there was a few things you picked up in this episode which I was like oh was it didn't notice but then maybe that's to show how little she's in it (laughs) in the car when Natalie and Albert go in the car to pick up Lisa that's when um, she's wearing the coat briefly the brown coat of death we're going to give names to all of Natalie's coats well that one is just the obvious one that needs to be yeah she was in this episode so little, I didn't even notice the coat. There was a, there was a curious scene where she was playing darts, and you had a, you had some thoughts about that, didn't 
didn't you? Yeah, well, that kind of leads us on to um, looking at Monique in this episode and how she's just really not happy with the current situation with Albert. You've already yeah. quoted her at the start of this episode. Yeah. And yeah, it just made me laugh because it kind of looked a bit like Natalie was like, she's having a bad day again. I'm just going to shuffle over to the dark yeah. and ignore what she said and not you know when someone's like I, i'm just not going to engage with that and we'll let it move on yeah she's not listening she's not gonna because in the past she's been a bit sort of conspiratorial with monique hasn't she but here it's just maybe just one scene i'm thinking of actually because they've not really connected very much at all but here she's just like i don't really i'm not interested in this situation yeah yeah and also her beer very frothy beer <laughs> It was like half a glass of beer, half a glass of just froth. Don't know who's pouring the pints, but they need to give, put a bit more in there. Yeah, and the really important thing to say about Natalie in this episode is if you didn't know that Natalie was originally meant to fly away from the Condide really quickly all the way to this mining town near Liège, get in a car. Which is actually, I just looked at a map before we started recording. I was like, where is Liège? I was like, oh, it's... Is it a long way? Quite far okay. from Brussels. That's yeah. very fast in a car, I think you'll find. And she was meant to kill Anna in the car, which was meant to be a shock. <gasps> but they decided, no, we can't really get Natalie there in time for it to be believable. But that was the original plan, which I would have preferred because it would give Natalie more to do in this series than she's had so far. Yeah, and to make her character again more, um, you know, morally. Because yeah. that would follow on or, well you know. from Second Chance, the previous episode. Yes. yes. She'd have been really busy um, bumping off people. She's handing people a gun and then she's running down. She's a cold-hearted murderess. Yes. My fury at Curtis just reached new levels by the end of this episode. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it until I read kind of what you described in um, your summary of this episode in your book. Oh, okay. Available from Classic TV Press. Oh, gosh. And um, where it's, um, you just kind of point out that it wasn't that big or foolish of a mistake the airman couldn't have sorry i'll say what yeah, i'm actually talking dude. about the airman giving jean paul something which identifies him as yeah. an raf airman and showing his involvement in the line there's no way he could have known where that might end up and, yeah. and then curtis just gives him a massive dressing down about it but then what is what is great is after he's just like you were such an idiot i can't believe you did this you gave, gave him away you had really tragic consequences blah 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 he just shouts at him for ages and then he's like by the way you're gonna lose your leg <laughs> he's just like what you absolute turd you horrible man yeah, so I think his fury was over the top. As you said, the badge helped prove his identity and it established trust with John Paul so John Paul would do stuff for him. It was so important. Yeah. And my, my I've got two, several contentions here, but it's absolutely compensation on project and projection on Curtis's part because he's feeling unable to contribute in the way he wants to in Brussels. He wants to run the line. He wants... And this is the thing of like, why is he here? He's... Yeah, moving on. What did we think of the um, of Housen's jaunt off to Switzerland at the end of the episode? So bizarre. I was really confused about what was going on because it was really tense. Yeah, I felt tense. I was a bit like, oh, I misremembered. Like, maybe I forgot they didn't get away. And I was thinking, yeah, do they all get captured in the end? It's all been for nothing. And especially because Secret Army is already established as being very bleak at this point. And you kind of learn to expect these contrasts now. So you're like, oh, they're just playing yeah. cards and then being a bit merry. And that's because they're about to be killed. And then it's like, yeah. oh, no, they're good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's only there for the juxtaposition of the the humour and the, the, the singing the song at the end mm. compared to the, the, the funeral procession and the, the grief of poor old Jean-Paul. But, but it doesn't work quite, that juxtaposition, because there's this weird tension on the airman's side of the weird changeover of the guards, which I've never understood. And it feels like something was written in there that they decided against. 
or something. Or maybe something had to be cut for timing purposes. Yeah, there's something going on there that we don't know because it's too strange. I want to ask you, did you like Edie? Um, Was that the neighbour? Or No, who have you called Edie? The woman in the headscarf with a very shriveled Oh, that was it. I knew I'd seen the name somewhere. I didn't notice this about the episode either, but I will go back and watch. I christened her Edie. She's not really called Edie, but I feel quite strongly that she was called Edie. And as they go around the corner of the grave, she almost trips over the curb. (laughs) And I just love... That's really horrible. And I think maybe it's maybe just being uncomfortable with the funerals that you kind of want something like that to happen so it doesn't feel so terrible. And everyone wants to laugh because it's awful. I have a story along the similar lines. So my great aunt passed away, and uh, who was actually called Edith, which makes this story perfect for this <laughs> oh, no, moment. No, no, no don't. No, it's fine. Sorry. It's fine. This isn't anything bad. Okay. Anything. She was 97. She had a good life. She died of old age, uh, not from falling over a, a gravestone, though. And um, we were having her funeral, and it was like a kind of small family affair. Like I remember my nana doing that thing where she like got a handkerchief out, licked it, and then wiped something off my sister's face. Yes. I was yeah. just teasing my sister about for ages. Um, but in the after, as the service um, finished, they started to wheel the coffin on the little trolley with the wheels, like out of the door to the side. And we just heard this clatter, and it sounded like the lid of the coffin had fallen off it was the same noise that would wow. be made okay. as if as if yeah. that had happened it was like the sound of wood falling onto the floor and everyone was like oh no and then someone just hurried through like maybe one of the pallbearers yeah. came running yeah. through and went it was just a piece of wood on the side <laughs> it was just something in the back um, and it just broke the tension and everyone just kind of laughed and then because that yeah. was the end of the surface everyone surface surface service yeah <laughs> everyone could then kind of go out feeling a little bit lighter for it so that was really yeah funny. it's it's a weird one that isn't it yeah although as i tell that story i'm now thinking he probably just ran through and <laughs> said that it was a random piece of <laughs> it wasn't it actually was <laughs> i know the well, coffin i'll was never know pieces. yeah yeah <laughs> sorry <laughs> my poor aunt my poor auntie Edith. i know yeah i also just wanted to say that they spend so much time on that procession and i remember watching it in the behind the scenes and thinking okay is it really necessary I don't think it really is, but it adds a sort of very European feel. It adds very similitude to the location and the the, the time. But um, I do feel it's there's quite a lot of that procession before, during, and after. I think you could just have Jean Paul coming out of the house and then the start of people gathering around a yeah. bit, and then the start of the procession down the hill. Um, and it still would have been a lot of money to spend for, <laughs> by shipping everybody to Belgium, <laughs> getting a hearse up a hill. I think they only shipped. Um, Jean-Paul and Emile would have been there. Of course, Susan Tracy. Oh, no, Susan Tracy, I don't think she... Oh, she would have gone to Belgium because she was in the in the, <laughs> in the street. <laughs> Working it out. We want to make this cheap. We don't want any of these people to come over to Belgium if we don't need them. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Um, it's slow-paced, but I, I don't know. Maybe because I have a bit more of a personal connection to it. I kind of, al- I, I kind of liked that it allowed you to sit with these moments in... Jean-Paul's life and his experiences and and maybe this is a good time yeah, to weave into it. that yeah. now so I'll do a quick disclaimer not disclaimer yeah. an awareness note for listeners but I won't talk about it a lot or in detail or anything but if you are feeling a bit raw or you've recently yeah. been bereaved you might want to um, just skip ahead a couple of minutes but when I was a teenager I was very unlucky I lost all three of my grandparents and my mum between the ages of 14 and 17 and some very close together 
And then the week that my mum died by suicide, my dad had a mental breakdown and just went completely, just wasn't there in his mind and had to be taken away to the same mental health ward that my mum was kept in and dragged away by police and ambulance men. So it was just really a time of like everyone kind of being gone. And I could really feel those scenes where uh, Jean-Paul like, you have to even so I was yeah. 16 when my mum died and you have those like really key moments where like the hearse pulls up and you you've, it's almost like putting on a show a bit because you know that as the direct relatives you're the main yeah. attraction if you will so you're like okay am I dressed am I ready enough mm-hmm. are we right we're gonna go in and follow the car behind the hearse and you kind of have that special p- privilege of being the immediate family so everyone like lets you head up the procession and things like that so in a way you don't really get chance to focus on your own grief that much at that time but then the key parts of the day are you know like following the coffin being carried and or wheeled or you know what have you so I really felt that moment like so powerfully of of him coming out the house and you know standing by the hearse and so that's yeah sometimes when you watch tv shows they will reflect you know difficult experiences of your own life but I but I thought Secret Army did it so well it really captured that feeling and it was actually a very uplifting moment as well as all of those other feelings running through because everyone was there and everyone had come, you know, to that mm. place for us and travelled so far and that kind of thing. But yeah, just I think I just wanted to share all of that because it's so prominent in this episode. I just want to say thank you for sharing that because I know it's deeply personal, but um, we are going to touch on things where it, it does relate to us personally because we're those sort of people, I guess. But thank thank you. And I think that's, um, you know, something that in a way has brought us together because not many people know what it's like to have difficult... No, that's a really silly thing to say. Sadly, too many people know what it's like to have difficulties in childhood, but it's not often that you meet yeah. someone and can talk about them. And you've always uh, shared your childhood yeah. experiences in podcasting and I've right. always been grateful for that. Yeah. And we've touched upon yeah. some of your childhood experiences yeah. already as well, haven't we? You know, about your father leaving and... <laughs> yeah. So look at us resilient people. I know. It's amazing we can podcast so professionally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean I think this just I, I kind of don't want to dwell on it, but just the fact that Jean Paul would have had his father's coffin in the house because that was the tradition in Belgium and so that was not new for him and the fact that when he went to get the soil and chuck it on the coffin that was not new for him he didn't have to be prompted I thought that was handled really well as Mm. a child who had seen too much too young just like you did yeah yeah and that was oh the scenes where he's in the house like just kind of um fiddling with possessions a bit or just doing that look of like oh this a lot is happening and yeah this is awful kind of look again Max Harris just captured beautifully just going to praise him more and more as the episode goes on (laughs) and this episode would have died on its arse if it hadn't been for him you are listening to down the line a secret army podcast well one thing i wanted to mention is the very end the badge is dropped in the dirt of the graveyard and i felt it was very earth shock like the way it was had it's sort of like the it was a brown background because the badge was there and it was falling to the ground it wasn't important anymore it served its purpose and they walked off and then I think it was a bit much that the the hearse went over the badge as well. It's like, oh, come on, we get it. We get it. And then someone else walked on it and then... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, then someone comes over and stamps on it. Yeah. It was just the fact that there was a long hold. I don't really remember. Before the music kicks in, it's almost Mm. like, Adric's died. Oh, no. (laughs) It was a bit like that. It was odd. I got strong Earthshock vibes from the end of the episode. 
So we haven't mentioned yet that, you know, that, that moment where just in case you weren't feeling sad enough after watching this episode where Jean-Paul has to be comforted by the chairman officer yeah, who's somewhat but not completely responsible for the whole thing. Yeah. And it's just so height of tragedy, isn't it, yeah. really? But, um, yeah, you've praised the actor's performance here. Tell me more about this actor. Brian Glover, yeah, who is brilliant as Magus Fontaine Lug, Peter Davison's sidekick in Campion. He's, of course, in Attack of the Cybermen in Doctor Who. And if listeners wanted to um, find out more about Campion or listen to a really good podcast episode about it, where can they um, go and do that, Andy? I can't think. (laughs) We may have covered it in the first series of an age set of UK TV drama. Mm, Shameless plug. (laughs) I know. He was also Anna Lee's sidekick, Selwyn Price in Anna Lee, which is a very bizarre uh, murder mystery series starring Imogen Stubbs. And he was one of the leads in Alien 3, which is the worst Alien film. No, actually, it's probably not, because there's Alien Resurrection and there's other crap stuff. Anyway. (laughs) I've not seen Alien 3 either. I'm behind. I need to catch up with Brian Glover's filmography. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you do. To make it even more confusing about Max Harris not being in Child's Play but in Growing Up is that Max Harris is in an episode of the Omega Factor or Omega Factor called Child's Play. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I like that as a fact. Good fact. It's good, isn't it? When we do our Secret Army pub quiz with the fans. Yes. All the UK fans. All of them. All of them. Every single one. And they will. we will have a pub quiz and that's the kind of questions that will be in it. What is the name of the barge that Angelina live on? What is? Was Max Harris in this episode? Yes or no? True or false? (laughs) Yes. I do want to throw out two more names in your direction, and they are... I'm ready to catch them. Get ready. We have Mademoiselle Gounet and Pierre Bazin. Aren't they good names? Mademoiselle Gounet and Pierre Bazin. And who are they? Well, do you not know who they are? Are they the the teacher and the shopkeeper? (laughs) They are. I think they don't get those names on the credits, do they? Do they just get teacher and shopkeeper? I don't know. But... They're both really quite famous actors in kind of slightly throwaway roles. So dealing with Pierre Bazin, first of all, I love saying that, can you tell? He is, of course, Howard of Hilda and Howard fame from Ever Decreasing Circles, the comedy series, wearing their matching sweaters and cardigans. (laughs) And he's also, I always like the fact that he's Princess Aura's very unlikely lover in Flash Gordon, the 1980 camp classic. And I think he's the one who gives... Sam J. Jones an injection which means he doesn't die, that Flash doesn't die and he escapes in his leather pants. I'm just grateful to him for that, that I got to see Flash in his leather pants. Um, (laughs) But then, do you know who Vivian Merchant is, who played Mademoiselle Gounet? I do not. Tell me more. You don't know anything about Vivian Merchant? No. Gosh. It's almost like I wasn't alive in the 70s. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's because I I was alive in the 70s is the reason I, I know. But it was quite famous because, I mean, it's sad. She died in 1980 of alcoholism. Oh, no. And it was because of what happened in the preceding few years. Oh, no. So so it had been happening during Secret Army. And that was, basically, Vivian Merchant was a very, very famous actress in in the 60s. And she was, um, she won the BAFTA for Best Actress um, in 1964 for her role in a TV version of Harold Pinter's, one of his plays. And Harold Pinter, famous playwright, was her husband. And Vivian Merchant was his muse and inspiration. And she, most of the female characters in Pinter, the lead characters, are based on Vivian Merchant. 
So in terms of her importance in theatrical history, it's huge as a character, as a person, because Harold Pinter's plays like The Homecoming, Birthday Party, I can't remember what they were called, but all of these different things that she was in. She was in. So she created the roles and also was the, the character as herself almost in these plays, which were hugely lauded and celebrated. But what happened was Harold Pinter had a very famous and public affair, or it was secret for a while, with Joan Bakewell. So Joan Bakewell was always, in, in that terrible way of the 60s, oh, she's the thinking man's crumpet sort of uh, thing. Oh, yeah, I hate that phrase. Oh, it's awful, isn't it? But um, Joan Bakewell was kind of, would present sort of like arts review programmes or political programmes and stuff like that. But the point is that um, there was this very public affair and it wasn't great for her. And I think she was still in love with Pinto and she took alcohol. And I think because of this, her roles diminished and she was considered to be unstable. But she... Um, I think there was maybe even two affairs. Oh, yes, there was. First of all, it was Joan Bakewell. Then it was Lady Antonia Fraser, ah. who I will never forgive for having written the Jemima Shaw mysteries, which were also covered on the UK TV drama pod because they were dreadful. But um, yes, it was Lady Antonia Fraser. And during this period when he was with um, Antonia Fraser, Vivian Merchant was famous for giving really terrible put-downs about her really publicly. That's just brutal. That's really brutal. Was it like along the lines of I wouldn't piss on her if she was on fire? It was it was stuff like that. It got quite brutal, but it was oh, very gosh. public. Mm. And I just was kind of saddened to see Vivian Merchant in a very reduced role where people wouldn't have known who she was even. But I was like, oh my God, is that Vivian Merchant? It looks like Vivian Merchant. And it was Vivian Merchant. Mm. There you go. End of the Vivian Merchant chat. And I think, to carry on the conversation, I think at the time... It would have been very much like, oh, Harold Pinter is a Jack the Lad, though, isn't he? He can get all the women. And she would just be seen as a bitter person. It's like, no, he did the dirty on her. Mm. Dawn, I asked you a straightforward question. And I require a straightforward answer. Where did you get this? Well, have you been struck dumb? I think we should get on to what we think are the big pros of the episode that we haven't said so far or even perhaps just move straight to the moment of the week i don't know you tell me we've perhaps covered everything that we might want to say about this episode although i will just kind of go back to the relationship between anna and the german officer yeah briefly just to say i thought again secret army showing all sides of the story it doesn't past judgment and you can really understand why these two people have got together but I'm probably more hammering a point home now rather than making a new point but I thought it was well done and in a way perhaps a smaller a condensed version of Madeline's storyline yeah Mm -hmm. the only other thing I'd like to say is I just hate those dramas where the boy isn't believed or the child isn't believed and I just loved that they immediately believed Jean-Paul about the airmen and also the teacher was on the... I thought it was cool that the teacher and the shopkeeper were like, no, we'll sort this out and we're glad you came to us. Although a lot of it wasn't in dialogue, it was off camera. But yeah, I thought it was really good that he was believed. Not supported though, you couldn't say he was supported because obviously Pierre Bazin kills his mother. But it was also good that he was shown to be really racked with guilt after that. He didn't just do it, he actually collapsed in on himself in the car, didn't he? And just broke down in mm. horror at what he'd done. I think this is one of those episodes where... It's bleak watching, but then as we think about it more or discuss it or you think about it while you're doing the washing up or whatever, mm. you're then like, oh, and then the consequences for that character are even worse than I first realised. Because, they, yeah, then presumably he's got, he'll see that. 
he'll see Jean-Paul again, you know, and we'll always know that what he's done and will he ever have yeah. a conversation? How much do you think is Jean-Paul aware that when he's running down to tell people what's about to happen, that that will result in the death of his mother? I know. I don't think he is aware of that at all. And maybe that is the only time when he's truly naive. I think he knows something bad is going to happen. He might not know the full consequences of it. Yeah. But yeah, that's awful. And then... Yeah, but there's an argument. <sighs> I don't know. I just think she wasn't a good mother to him, but he's going to have a terrible life. And certainly if he's going to be adopted by Schnorr, because then the kids will bully him mercilessly. So I, I wonder what his next... I think the, that very nice neighbour has taken him in. Good. And, it, and it's all fine. And Edie... Edie's taking him in with a headscarf. Edie pops in with tea and biscuits all the time to make sure he's all right. Oh, I'm happy about that. That's good. I like that. Maybe in the way that, you know, in later episodes, Natalie visits the wife of someone who was killed because of the resistance work and gives extra money. So maybe Natalie comes back and, you know, slips some food. Yeah. Well, she she would absolutely have to have done if she'd been the murderer, wouldn't she? Yeah. So what was your moment or line of the week? Normally these are more fun, aren't they? But my um, suggestions probably are bringing the tone down a bit. But it's just when he's in the cave and the airman's like, you know, I'm really thirsty. Sorry, I'm going to stop there. I've just remembered something else, which I just wanted to quickly ask you. Yeah. When the airman and Jean-Paul are talking, do you find the dialogue really weird? Does it seem like they're trying to... Because sometimes they're like miming as if they're both speaking English, but they're trying to convey a sense that they don't speak the same language. But then sometimes they're like, oh, oh we just speak the same language. So I, I wondered what... Discuss. I don't know, because I would have to watch it again okay. to, to know, because I didn't watch it in that context. Sometimes they're like, oh, thirsty, you know, I need some more water. And then other times they're like, oh, I just didn't think to bring any. And I'm like, well, are you... Are you can you understand each other <laughs> yes. or not? I don't know. You can't, you can't do... Yeah, exactly. You can't do both. Yeah, no, that's true. Good point. Okay. With my moment of the week, normally they're happier ones, but I might be um, bringing the tone down a bit with this. But it's just that moment where he's come back. Uh, Jean-Paul has taken the airman to the cave, or he's come back the next morning and the airman is thirsty. And he just goes, oh, I didn't think to bring any water. And I just thought it was a really good moment because, again, it, it got that childhood thing of you're dealing with a lot of big stuff you're dealing with it very well better than some adults as we've discussed but then there might just be something you overlook because you're a kid and yeah it got me in the feels andy it isn't much but it'll keep you going i'll bring some more tomorrow any uh water Uh, something to drink didn't think to bring anything to drink is there a stream or a spring near you there was two lines that were in contention for me. One was Albert saying to Curtis, you're not the only one who can count to five. And I just loved how he put him down so easily. But my favourite was when Jean-Paul shouts out, but he's a German, um, to his mother. And it's like, I just love the fact that that was just the purity and the strength of that stand he makes against Emile initially and all the way through until the end. It's, you know, he's the enemy. You can't do this. He understands what's at stake. He understands that it's not okay. And of course he's motivated by the fact that his father died at the hands of the Germans, effectively. But um, I just loved that outburst. It was just like, what? And I thought that was that was really good. I, that was my favourite moment. Yeah, yeah, very good. Mm-hmm. In terms of historical reality in this episode, AJ has some book recommendations for you. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> homework. Homework. <laughs> like homework. <laughs> 
this is a, as I have mentioned previously. Uh, what I love is that Secret Army has got me down a, a real life history rabbit hole. So my bookcases are groaning with the extra weight of all the books I've bought Ooh. about the Second World War. But I've got a happier recommendation and then a really depressing read. Oh gosh. Okay. <laughs> so uh, one is called Children Against Hitler. It's by Monica Porter, published by Pen and Sword, and it mentions just really amazing young people who are in their teenage years doing really amazing resistance work against the Nazis. So just to pick a couple of names of more well-known ones, there's someone called um, Hanny Shaft, who was in a resistance group in the Netherlands and, yeah, did amazing... Like, at at one point, I think, had to assassinate a German officer in the town and they did it by, you know, riding a bike and managing to cycle in, kill someone and cycle out again. And they had to threaten a a cafe owner and say, when they come in and ask if people matching the description have been here, you've got to lie. We've got to, you know, holding the gun at them and that kind of thing. And then Mm. acting as normal in the cafe and being like, oh, we're just teenage girls, la, la, la. And sadly, she did eventually get captured and killed. I can't remember the name of um, who she used to do the resistance work with now, but her and the other young woman, one of them would dress as a guy, so they would be like a young couple uh-huh. moving undetected. And then um, a quick mention of Jacques Lussiran as well. So Jacques was blind and ran his own resistance network. As a kid? Yeah, yeah, as a teenager. Amazing. So um, I wanted to mention it because it links in quite well with um, Jean-Paul's kind of actions yeah. of just kids being again very brave and very competent and amazing people so and then if you want a really (laughs) bleak book (laughs) it's one about um, the experiences of german children in war called witnesses of war by nicholas dargart but it's it's really interesting if you're into that kind of thing it looks at everyone from children who might have been moved to other countries as part of the uh, is it Lebensraum? Yeah. And their experiences in Hitler Youth. And then it also looks at children in institutions. or that it, it looks at the whole range of children who were fighting against soldiers invading their country. Yeah. But man, yeah, get your tissues for that one, though. It's not as uplifting right. as the first okay. book. But both very good books. So when yeah. you've read them, please get in touch and I will grade your homework. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, of course, this isn't the last time that we will have children in Secret Army. Mm. We have a very famous episode in series two, which is quite child heavy. Oh, of course. Yes, yes. So one thing we haven't done yet is hear what Ryan thought of the episode. Shall we go for it? Oh, we haven't. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe I've forgotten that key part to our podcast. Well, I'll tell him you forgot. What did Ryan think? We need a theme tune. What did Ryan think? Are you ready? So ready. Right. So we just watched Growing Up. What did you make of it? I liked the little kid. The little kid was acted very well. He was good, wasn't he? Yeah. Like, everything to do with the little kid was... I mean, I, obviously that's the centre of the episode, but that seemed really good. I enjoyed being outside of the line, watching that side of it. Mm. I thought that was really interesting, like how people get into the line, I suppose. And mm. How someone is found by someone who's not connected to the line. Yeah. I thought it was pretty brutal when it's just like... His mum's running along and then, oh, she's hit by a car. Oh, now she's dead. It's yeah. like, wow, okay. <laughs> there were a few options that it could have gone to, but it's like, no, see, I fly over a bonnet and then yeah. that's it. Secret Army tends to pick the more brutal options as it goes along. <laughs> yeah, well, I was also then thinking that the pilot was going to then, when the guard went to the loo, that it was going to be a, ooh, it's not looking good for them. I know, I thought that. I was confused by that and I've seen it before. Yeah. <laughs> What did you make of the German soldier played by? He's quite a famous character actor, Brian Glover. You're not rooting for him, but you can't help but sort of like him by the end when he kind of embraces the kid mm. and just holds his hand and be there for him because no one else gives a flying fuck about that kid. No. It seems to be in, the, in his house on his own and all that stuff. 
And what did you make of his mother? Oh, she was a bit of a bitch, really, wasn't she? <laughs> Just, I'm getting him by the shoulders. And... Yeah, it was a bit shaky, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. But the, the thing that I don't understand is why Kessler was so pissed off, because he was acting on the same amount of information that the other guy had. Yeah. So it's like, even though, okay, yeah, they staked out these barns and nothing happened, mm. what was his plan? He wouldn't have caught the guy any sooner. No. So I don't know why he was so angry about his report being wasted, other than the man hours or whatever. Mm. Yeah. It's like, yeah, but, you know, it was a good idea. It was a good plan. Yeah. For the big I am that Kessler was when he was brought in, he's not really done much, has he? Yet. Yet. <laughs> oh, he will. I didn't realise how slow a start it was for him, actually, in the series. Mm. Yeah. Anything else about any of the Condide regulars, Albert, Monique, Lisa, Natalie, anything? I think I always struggle to know who's in charge, but then I guess that's part of the deal, is no one's really in charge. Mm. But who is in charge? Well, it's meant to be Lisa, because she's meant to have started the line. Okay. But Albert seems to be in charge a lot, mm. and then he's not. Yeah. And it's like, who is in charge? Hmm. Good question. Are you done? Yep. Okay. Thank you, Ryan. Until next time. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, yeah, Ryan, I really um, enjoy listening to Ryan's insights because he often picks up on things that we either haven't thought about or we forgot to mention yeah. in the episode. Or we completely ignored. <laughs> or we completely ignored. Yeah, yeah. so we missed we miss talking about that whole plot, didn't we? Yeah. Of, well, we talked about the room being bugged. Yeah. And then we, we didn't talk about... It's easy to overlook in the episode, I think. So Brandt has got a plan to capture mm. more people in the evasion line. It doesn't work out. And Kessler's a dick about it, essentially. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, I really like Ryan's kind of put down of, well, well, well actually, what was your plan, Kessler? Did you, did you <laughs> yeah. even have a plan? Are you just going to get pissed at Brant again? <laughs> or as he called him, the other guy. The other guy. He's not quite there on the names yet, which is understandable, because as is, you can see, there's a the lot thing. of other characters happening and not much of the German or the Lifeline regulars. Exactly. At some point I said to Ryan, what did you think of the Condit regulars? And he was like, who? <laughs> and I mean, I, I mean the lifeline regulars. All oh, right, he gets it then. Is there a phrase to do with Sherlock Holmes, like the Baker Street Irregulars or something? Yes, there is. They were the they were the young, they were the Baker Street boys, effectively, weren't they? Oh, uh, okay. Because I've heard that phrase, but it just pleases me greatly when we call them the lifeline regulars, because it's like the Baker Street Irregulars and they're the lifeline see. regulars. I like, like it. I like it. So we've heard what we think about growing up. We've heard what Ryan thinks about growing up. But what do our lovely listeners think? Well, we we sing Alex's praises a lot, and Alex has kindly got back to us oh, um, again today. And because Alex is going away next week at the time of recording, sent me a direct message with their thoughts on the next episode we are recording. Oh, hurrah! So I was I was very moved. I was like, oh, aren't you wonderful? You're going away, and you've prioritised our podcast by sending in your thoughts before we record. So thank you, Alex. Thank you very much. I think one thing I would say is you can be more Alex to our other listeners. <laughs> and we will try to be more Alex and, you know, give people reminders and more notices to get involved. Yeah, but indeed. everyone so, else needs to also tell us what they think, please. We would like to know. Yeah. So what did Alex Wilcock think? What did Alex Wilcock think? <laughs> Sorry. What did Alex think? <laughs> So Alex says, what do you hold on to when you've got nothing left? Growing up is another tense and moving episode with that early on feel again, almost of an anthology series, a small tragedy of people we won't see again. 
where later secret army would bring Belgian women and German soldiers much more close up. Great role for the brave little boy with a terribly real giving in at the end, and a brilliantly grim juxtaposition of the evaders going out singing with the hearse. It might have Curtis's best stern scene too. Do you want to carry on? We also heard from Dominic J. Brown, Growing Up is my favourite in Series 1. Norman Ashley gives us a great emotional performance, also like Brian Glover being unsympathetic, but ultimately good. But Max Harris truly was the star of the show here. The mother getting run down was probably the moment that sold the series to me. Oh, wow. So, yeah, key moment. Yeah, so thank you, Dominic. Did he say Norman Ashley? Norman Ashley? Who Ashley. did he play? Housen. Of course. Yes, I agree. Uh, I didn't mention it, but I yeah. liked his performance. I thought he was very good. He was good. And he's he's got a really nice little role in I, Claudius mm. as well. Was that also on A to Z of uh, UK TV? <laughs> it might have been. <laughs> so, I think we have all grounded up. Yeah, we, we have. When this episode draws to a close, you're going to hear some more sound bites from fans of Secret Army on what they love about their show and their memories of watching it. If you would like to contribute as a soundbite to the end of the episode or just share your thoughts on the podcast or Secret Army in general, you can get in touch at Secret Army Pod on Twitter or secretarmypod at gmail.com. And do get in touch. We love to hear from you. And please do also rate and review us, five stars please, on both Spotify and what it's called, iTunes. Is it still called iTunes? Yeah, all of the things. Whatever you can rate us on, rate us on it. Yes, please go ahead. What happens to people if they don't leave a five-star review, Andy? Ultimately, they just feel lonely and sad inside. So it's a way of actually ensuring that they have little bunny rabbits with hearts on their chest running around inside their chest cavities. (laughs) Okay, that got weird very quickly. (laughs) It got really weird. I haven't even drunk anything. so That was like a darker, <laughs> a longer, more sinister version of like every time you give us five stars, a kitten is born. But like, oh, yeah. you you took it too far, Andy. Yeah, I did. <laughs> do you want to do that again or are you happy with how it stands? I'm happy with it because there's some people out there who okay. quite like the idea of rabbits running around their chest cavity. Okay. Well, I was just thinking, you know, if people are thinking about leaving anything less than a five-star review, Natalie will come and give them a hard Paddington stare. Like she gives Albert in Series 3, and we don't want to be on the receiving end of one of those. Exactly. So, you will hear us again the next time we go down the line when we take a look at Episode 7 of the first series of Secret Army, and that is the episode Lost Sheep. I have been Andy. And I have been AJ. Bye. Bye. Hi, my name's Simon. Been watching the show since it was first broadcast. It was a, it was a show I never intended to watch. I was sort of 15 or something when it was first broadcast, and my uh, parents watched it. And I think I started watching it just as a, a avoiding going to do the homework, and um, and then kind of got into it. And and so it was always like I would, would would watch it most weeks. But it was interesting watching the reruns just recently on on Talking Pictures. How how much I'd remembered, but also how much I'd forgotten about it. But I just remember watching it and it was, you know, it was one of the few series that I think we, we kind of all watched. I think it, I think my mum was into it more than my dad. Um, and uh, yeah, she, I think she, she enjoyed it for the, the plot and, and, and what have you. And obviously they were the generation that had lived through the war. So again, I think one of the things that's different about Secret Army is it's not about the traditional 
war stories we get it, get it presented in a lot of tv and film and what have you they enjoyed it for that reason it was kind of seeing a slightly different perspective the character the character kind of i think never gets enough mentions is alan i think he was kind of like the glue that's uh kind of kept kept them all together at various points and uh and and you know his his character is actually just as important in some respects as as as, as the others but he's always kind of just there in the background. But yeah, I think he's he's kind of one of one of the the, the characters I I always liked. And um, I think just uh, Reinhardt again, just because he was quite quite a cool guy. My mum always used to call him the good German. <laughs> he he was the one who was standing up to Kessler and standing up for kind of being decent and and what have you. Yeah, just that whole attitude, uh, and that he wasn't going to take any uh, anything from Kessler or anybody else really. You know, he'd been there, done that won the leather jacket and the and the medal and uh, you know you do get things that go wrong people get killed um it's not a kind of one way the you know lifeline of the heroes and it always works out for them at the end of every episode it's it's kind of most of the time it doesn't uh, or doesn't work out in the way that they would have wanted it to and equally i mean if you think about it the way albert is portrayed he could easily be in kessler in different circumstances he's he's you know he's quite ruthless quite fanatical and and you know you know, we see that on lots of occasions. You know, he's quite happy to to kill people, including the you know people people from the Allied side, if it's going to compromise lifeline. But also, I think there's there's just things like you know people get killed. It's kind of it kills off a main character for no plot reason. It's just well, people get killed in a war. She's there, she gets killed. Next episode, she's gone, and they just have to get on with it. Which we you know, even in the kind of the best TV series, usually if somebody dies, there's a plot reason for it. Andy and AJ will be back with another episode in two weeks' time.